We are continuing the Sermon on the Mount. This morning we are actually focusing on verse 12 primarily. But verse 12, the golden rule, is really sort of a hinge. It, it picks up on everything that's come before it. It's the high point. And then it, the next week we'll have the final uh, sermon from the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll also uh, probably reprint verse 12 and consider how it takes us into the final verses. But the, the, um, the golden rule is what we'll be talking about this morning. And the hope is that we can actually learn something from this sermon, how to live the golden rule. I find that this might be one of those verses that we read and think that would be nice. And then we move on to other verses. But this morning, we will dig in and actually grow in our ability, I believe, to follow this rule. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise that you are with us. Jesus, we thank you that you've pursued us, that you've granted us access to your kingdom through your blood. Father, forgive us for trivializing the gospel. And I pray this morning, as we look at this very amazing one-sentence um, command or verse, um, that we would understand more what it means to follow you. In your name we pray. Amen. I have been noticing a pattern of certain articles lately, and instead of just reading one or two, I'm just thinking about the concept that, that many are starting to suggest we are becoming more narcissistic than we've ever been before as a, as a society, as a community, at least the American culture. Remember, a narcissist is the, the God who peers into the water and finds the most beautiful reflection known to man. And what was the reflection? Himself. And that's how most of us feel. I think the world out there motivates itself and us often by doing things for yourself, things that make you feel good, even good things. Unfortunately, I think this has bled into the church, and I think we all can be guilty. You know, you really should read your Bible more. Why? It will make you feel better, right? It will help your day go better. Not all of that is wrong, but so often, what we do, what we use as the litmus test for what we do in life is how it will make us feel. But once again, Jesus shows us that that is completely backwards. And in this Sermon on the Mount, this Sermon to Disciples, He is showing, remember this, not a new idea, not something that would really be cool if you would just follow it, but He's revealing the way the world is really supposed to work. And he's saying, if you are a follower of me, Jesus is suggesting, is saying, and you have been washed by me and you know me and you're filled by me, you will love others. You will love others. And so this morning we're going to look at that and try to unpack what does it mean to follow the golden rule? Do you love others as yourself? <clears throat> Excuse me. Three points we're going to look at. How wide is this rule? How, you know, how vast does it cover? How deep does this rule go? And then how? Just how do you do it? Those are the three points we're going to look at. So how wide is this rule, the golden rule? Growing up, or, or first of all, before I say I grew up, I, I think one of the things that shows the width of this rule is how, how many places in our society it comes from. Growing up, my father, who is not a Christian, who didn't even live in our home, but from time to time would say to me, you know, Ryan, do you know the golden rule? Do not do anything to others that you would not have them do unto you. That kind of stuck. 
right? That's why I've never broken it. <clears throat> Another source, Confucius. Even Confucius says, do not to others what you would not wish done to yourself. And finally, there's a story uh, from the first century. There were two rabbi schools, Shammai and Hillel, and there was a, div- a, a, a disciple went to the first, Shammai, and said, I will sit on one leg, and I want you to tell me the law, all the law, and I will balance the entire time. And the rabbi Shammai said, forget it, in Hebrew. And then uh, he goes to the other school, to Hillel, and says the same thing. And here's what the rabbi Hillel does while this guy is on his foot, on one leg balancing. He says, what is hateful to you do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law. All the rest is commentary. So right there, even in the first century, you see this idea that everything flows out of the golden rule. It's that wide. <clears throat> but did you notice in all three examples, it was all negative? Do not do unto others. Don't do what's hateful to you. I think for the most part, that right there is easier to accomplish. So we limit the width of this command by saying, okay, here's how it's going to go down. I'm simply going to not do hateful things to other people, which we all break, but at least we think that's a good idea, and we limit the golden rule to what is negative. Why is that important? Um, Well, in our household, I am prone to leave clothes on the ground. My wife hates this in a loving way. Um, Now, I could easily say, but you know what? It doesn't bother me. So, I will not do to you what you don't do to me, and that doesn't bother me. So guess what's going to happen? And that doesn't really work too well. Also, what we, that would basically limit us to is, I would say, a really great society of, of a lot of neutrality. right? But it doesn't capture the richness of verse 12. What is Jesus saying? What's the positive? He says, so whatever you wish. And the actual Greek there is, in everything, therefore do unto others. That's a profound statement. In everything, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So is Jesus saying in everything, again, that matters to you? Or is He saying in all things? I want you to imagine a scenario where you're trying to apply this law and um, there's a little... I'm sorry to use the proverbial little old lady. I apologize. There's the little old lady with the, with the uh, walker with groceries trying to cross the street. So, how would this sermon, or how would this statement apply? Ryan, me, would you help that lady across the street with the positive or the negative? Well, well no, because I am a man. I'm 40. I don't, want, I don't need help across the street. Look at me. I, I'm healthy. I can walk. Don't ask Chris how healthy I am. I was like setting up chairs earlier and sweating profusely. He was skipping like a gazelle. Um, But nonetheless, I could make it across the street. I know that much about myself. What would Jesus ask me to do? He would say, empathize. What if all of a sudden I had her body, her condition, her walker? You know, I might be walking out of the store with a gallon of milk. What if I had just purchased all those groceries? I would want you to help me, right? So this command is so wide, it's saying you have to actually empathize with people. And that's why we've included these other verses that Jesus has just read and preached in the sermon when he says to uh, the, the, the group there, you know, take the plank out of your own eye so that you can see the speck to help people. 
In other words, empathize. Remove the blindness, right? So this is a very wide command. Recently I watched a movie with my kids, my boys, I've seen it before, called Yes Man. Anyone seen Yes Man? And years ago I'd actually found the memoir that it was based on. Uh, you could skip the memoir, watch the movie, because Jim Carrey is funny. But it's the premise behind Yes Man is Jim Carrey plays a character who is kind of down and out. His marriage is he's divorced. He's lonely. His friends are trying to reach out to him. He's ignoring all of their requests. And he just says no all the time. Any of you find yourself just default saying, nope, too busy, can't do it. That's Jim Carrey. Then he comes across a guy that he used to know that said, you've got to do this conference it's called Yes Man, and it's a conference where you learn to say yes in every situation. So he goes to this conference reluctantly. It's a hysterical scene. You've got to watch it. And he comes out, and he's going to commit to trying it. He gets in his car, and a homeless person walks up and knocks on the door and says, can I get a ride to such such park? And the other guy pops in. Yes, he can. He's, you know, so Jim Carrey's like, yes, get in. Drives him up to the hills of Hollywood somewhere. And then he, and he, by the way, he says, can I use your cell phone? So now he's on the cell phone. Talk, this is a hilarious scene. He's talking to like a buddy of his, which is interesting. Uh, and here's Jim Carrey like wondering what he's getting himself into. They come to the park. The guy says, hey, can I borrow a few dollars? Pulls out his billfold. How much do you need? And he opens his billfold. The guy's like, all of it. Okay, yes. Gives him all his money. The, guy, the batteries run down. The car is now out of gas. The homeless guy runs off and jumps in the bushes somewhere. And here's Jim Carrey all on his own, kind of at his end. He walks all the way back to a gas station, and he meets the love interest of the story, right? She's really pizzazzy and cool, and there you go, on to the rest of the movie. And throughout the movie, his yes quality gives him Korean and flying airplanes. It's just a funny thing. It's a funny premise because I think... Emily has asked me and said to me, you should maybe work on that a little bit. You know, say yes, that's twice you've been in the sermon. That's it. Check. I struggle because I, my default is no. Why? Because I want to protect. If I say yes, I don't know what I'm getting into. And I'm afraid of just getting sucked into things. And, and how many, if you watch this story, you know, he's walking into a coffee shop. Well, on a coffee shop, there are all these like want ads. He has to take them one by at a time. Korean. You know, I'll take all these lessons and, and piano, and he feels compelled to just say yes to everybody. But isn't that part of why we avoid the golden rule? We lose ourselves. We're afraid of disappearing. We're afraid that if all of a sudden, in every situation, I have to do to people what I would want done, I'm pretty picky. I like me. So it's going to be really hard to do. And so I think that's one major reason we avoid it. But the answer to that dilemma might be found in the second point, which is how deep this goes. How deep is this command? He says, so whatever you wish, Jesus says, that others would do to you, do also to them. But then he says something I think that should just jolt you. For this is the law and the prophets. He doesn't say this is part of a huge chunk. This is the law and the prophets. Now, why is that so astounding? Well, elsewhere, when a lawyer is asking Jesus what the greatest commandment is, what does he say? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. That's the number one commandment. 
But then he follows it up. But the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, for Jesus, you love other people and you love God from the same source. It's not like you sort of do some loving to God and then you, I'll be back and you go love people. It's two sides of one coin. And that, that, that makes this a very deep commandment because now we're not just saying yes all the time, but we're actually trying to love people. And that brings up this word others. I think that I have often, I don't know if I've ever consciously done this, but there's a tendency as I think back to my view of this commandment and thought, this is the kind of commandment that applies when I'm in front of somebody. When I'm talking to you and you ask me for help, in that moment, this commandment applies, right? I've got to think what I want done if I were moving or if I were doing this. Sorry, Katie and Greg, I could be. Maybe, um, see? Um, but we, you know, what would I want if I needed help? And, and so in those moments, certainly it applies. But what about the parts of your life where you're sort of not being asked for things? Someone's not trying to get across the street. Maybe you're at your desk working, you're reading a novel, whatever you're doing. How can those moments sum up the law and the prophets? And the answer is for Jesus, you're always serving others. Have you ever thought about that? You're never not affecting other people. Right? Everything we do affects people around us. Um, I think in society, we sort of reject that problem. I think a lot of the culture says, look, when I'm behind closed doors, what I do is my business. I think a lot of Christians kind of feel that way too. Even if it's not blatantly sinful, it's my time, it's my resources, what I want to do, it's me. Right now I'm by myself, leave me alone. Or my family, we're by ourselves. But then the same culture that says that agrees with concepts like chaos theory. You know, with the butterfly effect, right? A butterfly flapped its wings and the Amazon, it might lead to a hurricane some years later. I don't know if that's all true, right? But we get it that everything we do really does affect other people, doesn't it? If I'm at my computer and I'm working and I'm not even on the internet, it's just me in a Word document. I've got a boss. I've got the customer I might be working for. I've got a spouse and children who hope I do a good job to keep the paycheck coming, right? We're, we're constantly connected to other people. When I'm driving, we talk about don't text. Why? I'm in my car. I'm by myself. Because what I do in the car greatly affects the people around me. One way that this was illustrated for me is uh, we have a good friend who early in his marriage uh, was was um, with his wife. They didn't have children yet. And he his wife says, I'm going to run some errands. When I come back, I want you to have started the laundry. She leaves. He loves basketball. He's a KU fan. So he turns on KU basketball. He's a grad student at the time. And he says, I don't remember what happened, but maybe an hour and a half or two hours have gone by. I'm zoned out. I'm sitting there watching the game. And their apartment at the time had a window. The blinds were closed, but he sees the shadow and hears the walk. And he just jumps up, and he slips on the floor, and he hits his head, and he's laying on the ground moaning when she walks in and says, what happened to you? What's going on? And he's laying there like, and he kind of points back at the laundry basket still sitting there untouched. And her sympathy just went, whoosh, gone. Well, now, that's a very silly example, but what we do, his not helping with laundry, even though it was his time, affected her, right? 
What we do affects other people. How we feel, how we think. This is pretty profound, actually. If you really start to think about uh, what you even do with your free time. Are you loving others? And what Jesus is saying is not, you better always be serving other people with his finger wagging. Rather, he's saying, when you understand the Gospel, you will always want to do things that ultimately do bless others. Now, your own vacation is that. Getting rest is a way to love other people. How? Because you are rested. So we're not taking away fun right, or recreation. That's part of the kingdom. But you're doing it you know, as a service to others and not as a selfish thing. Does that make sense? Um, maybe instead of watching television, you choose to read a novel. Maybe you choose to watch television. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm just saying the Scriptures seem clear. Everything we do in some way or another is connected to other people. So this commandment is wide, but it's deep because it's connected to other people and ultimately it's connected to God. Right? This sums up the law and the prophets. Whatever Jesus is saying must affect the way we are interacting with our Savior and our Father in heaven. So it's deep and it's wide. Right? So how do we do it then? If we, if at this point, you just feel the weight. This is why you don't read this verse. Right? It's like, that's why I glaze over that one. I was perfectly fine back in chapter 5 to glaze over, be perfect as your heavenly Father's perfect. I glazed right through that one, and I'm happy to glaze right through this one. Um, I don't know where you end up wanting to rest because they're all intense. But, here's the good news. Jesus is promising something when we read this as a promise. He will equip you. Right? He will equip us. How so? Let's back up into the ask. Last week we talked about asking and seeking and knocking. When we believe on Christ, when we follow Him, we begin to live a life not of performance, but of dependence. And I, don't think of, I can't think of any other verse other than 12 that would drive you more to knowing your dependence on your Savior. Constantly seeing your selfishness. Constantly seeing yourself trying to live this life for yourself. Right? Drives you to Jesus. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, rescue me. And I want to draw, I want to illustrate this, pretty much all, this entire sermon using another passage that I've taught from here before and that I just, for me, it captures it. And it's John 13. That Jesus, knowing that he's leaving, he, he washes the disciples' feet. And the reason I think that is a picture of even this golden rule is this. Remember the setting. The disciples have shown up to a, to a Passover celebration with Jesus. They've already assumed that he's going to do something great, but they're not sure what. They've begun, two of the guys fought over who would be on the left and the right in the kingdom. And, and whatever they've done, they've showed up to this meeting place, they're clean, and they're ready to have this Passover meal, but there's a dilemma. There's a jar of water, but no servant. And the way it was designed, the ideal would have been to have several, three different aspects to this servant. Number one, they wanted a Gentile. So that when this Gentile cleaned their feet with all that junk, they would take it outside of the community group. Community group. Whatever. Fellowship meeting. Passover meal. Secondly, it needed to be a woman. And thirdly, a slave. Those were like the three, in that culture, lowest things. Essentially, they wanted a scapegoat. 
someone to come in, clean the part that got dirty again when they entered the room, and take it away so they could celebrate this meal that's, that talks about the Passover lamb. Right? That's what was, that was the ideal. Now, as you can imagine, they get there. Jesus is there. They're all seated. Some of them are type A, Peter especially. And they're kind of going, this isn't going to go so well. I'm pretty sure we forgot to hire that person. They were taken. We were late to the, to the game. And so they're struggling. And so Jesus, as you know, washes their feet. I'm going to talk about that in a second. But when he finishes, he says, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. For so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. A lot of people have thought, oh, so every now and then we'll gather together and wash feet. Got it. No. Jesus is saying, here is the Gospel. You needed a Savior to come from the outside in. There is no behavioral program. There is no Confucian statement. There's nothing that's going to save you. You need a Savior. And Jesus says, I am the one. And not only have I washed you at conversion, but I continually wash you. Ask, seek, and knock. And it's only when that is happening in your lives, repentance and faith, that you can love other people. And so in the passage, how does Jesus, in this, par- in this living parable of John 13, demonstrate this? I love the fact that it, it talks about what Jesus knew of Himself. And I mentioned this before. When you, the Bible is so beautiful. You have to pick up on the little nuances. And when John is describing this story, he, in a, not, I'm not criticizing, in an awesome way, he's tripping over the facts to tell you what Jesus knew. Right? During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew his role. Jesus knew that he was the God of the universe. He came for this purpose, and he was going to wash their feet. Now, why did that? Why did Jesus have to wash the feet? Why couldn't Peter stand up and do it, or one of the other disciples? The answer is this, and I will I will say this: it's not in the scripture, but there, as long as sin remained, as long as their flesh reigned, they had no ability to even physically stand up and wash each other's feet. Aside from the fact that they weren't qualified because they weren't sinless, right? They are so selfish. And that's what Peter demonstrates. Jesus comes to Peter, and you remember what Peter does? Are you going to wash my feet? Jesus says, yes, I'm going to wash your feet. What I do, you don't understand, but you will later understand what I'm doing. You will never wash my feet, says Peter. What does Jesus say? If I don't wash you, you will have no part in me. All of a sudden, he makes Peter understand this is salvation we're talking. I mean, we're talking even though you're already saved, you can't go through life not allowing me close. So then Peter responds, fine, 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 wash me. Okay, I didn't realize how big of a deal this was. Uh, but wash my head and my hands and then my feet. What does Jesus say? You've already taken a bath. 
I don't need to sit here and bathe you all over again. Don't ritualize this. Don't turn repentance over a particular area of, of grossness into this sort of generalized, okay, I'm a big sinner and I do horrible things and, and all the ways we try to ignore the fact that we are sinful. And if you want to know how to love your neighbor as yourself, it will never happen until you realize the lengths that Jesus currently is going to love you. Not just the day you accepted Christ, but today. Have you exposed your heart to Jesus? If you're struggling to see this golden rule and wonder how you might possibly fulfill this in our culture, the answer is it will only happen as you run to Jesus and ask and seek and knock and expose the planks to Him. So where are these planks in your life? The places where, like Peter, you revolt. Be careful that you don't just start serving because it's easy for you. Well, I'll tell you what I'm good at. Okay, that's great. We need that. But what are you bad at? What are you resisting? What makes you revile? Maybe that's your point. And Jesus is saying, expose that. And when you do that, and you allow Him to wash you, which is the most humiliating, a lot of people talk about, oh, that's too easy to just sit there and let Jesus wash you. Is that the Gospel? Is that what sanctification is? That is obviously, according to Peter, the hardest thing he's ever done. The one time he doesn't respond in that, that situation is when he's finally sitting there letting Jesus wash his feet. The hardest thing you will ever do is die for all of your hope that you are the one who can save yourself. This is not just for those that are not Christians in the room. This is for those of us that are Christians. Are you allowing Jesus in? Are you letting Him love you? Because until that happens, you cannot turn and love others as yourself. So, let me apply this as we come to the end. Number one, are you washed? So in John 13, he says, you've been washed. Afterwards, he says, you're clean. All, not all of you. It was Judas. Judas was in the room. Are you clean? Are you washed? Has, have you received Christ? This is not, I'm not trying to make this difficult or hard, but there are those probably in this room who know in their mind and their hearts, you know what, I really don't think I know Jesus. I don't think I've, maybe you know very clearly, I never, I don't even believe. Or maybe you believe he's real, he's true, he probably existed, and there might be something to Christianity, but you know you've never asked him in your heart. I would invite you this day to have Christ come in. He wants to come in. He wants to convert you. He wants to change you. But for those of us that know Christ, remember, we're resisting him again. We resist him daily. And we're resisting his coming close to us because we actively want to believe we can change ourselves. That's our narcissism. That's our self-centered methods of changing. You can't. The only way you will begin to love your neighbor as yourself is when you repent and say, Jesus, once again, look, here's the sin. Here's the plank. And by asking and seeking and knocking, that the Spirit would come in and freshly reveal the way He has saved you and continues to wash you. Another application, and this is where the actual golden rule applies now. 
it all applies. But now we are repenting prayerfully. And we're saying, Jesus, now what? Send me. And here I am, Isaiah 6. Are you a reproducing Christian? Think about this for a minute. Are the angels looking at your neighborhood and going, I've got great news. We've got the Smiths right there. So we've got somebody in that neighborhood. Oh, at that job, at that plant, we've got the whomever. I don't want to name, I know we don't have any Smiths, so I've got to be careful. We've got that family there, that person there. Are you somebody that is representing the kingdom of God? Are you somebody that is a priest to the world? Or would people say, I never knew that person even was a Christian? All they do is complain. All they do is they're lazy, they're workaholics, whatever. Are we living this gospel to where people would look at us and realize they have someone they can turn to? Are we reaching out to the lost around us? Then we're not loving people as ourselves. If we claim to believe the gospel, and if we claim that Jesus has rescued us and He's washed us, and we know that there are people who don't believe that, Are we praying for them? Are we reaching out? Do we know their names? And I'm guilty. I'm new to Stillwater and I've not met all my neighbors. I'm not even new anymore. I'm going to keep saying that for 10 years. You're what? You've been here for 10 years. You should know your next door neighbor. Okay, I know my next door neighbor. Um, Thankfully, we have some vacant lots. But, do I know my neighbors? I would encourage you to, first and foremost, as we come to the table, respond to this sermon by receiving, not for the unless you're not a Christian for the first time, we're not suggesting that there's a second blessing or another work. What we are saying is the continued application of the blood of Christ, of us exposing our sin to Him and receiving Him, is what drives our growth. And that's what sets us free. 